Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. Hey, if you're new here this morning, I want to extend a very, very warm welcome to you. Maybe this is your first time you're just visiting, maybe with your family. We are so glad you're here. We're so glad you're here. If you are a regular part of us, to you I will say, Merry Christmas, you filthy animals. (laughs) Thanks for laughing. I didn't know if that was going to go or not. Right? We've been watching uh, Home Alone as a family, so... Yeah, I thought thought I'd drop that in there. In all seriousness, though, it is a highlight of my week to to spend time with you all on Sunday morning. I hope it's a highlight uh, for you as well. And hopefully, we'll see many of you this evening at 6 p.m. 6 p.m., we plan to have our Christmas Eve service. So hopefully, you'll, you'll head on out for that, make that a part of your family tradition. I have it on good authority that there will be some kids wearing Christmas jammies. So if your kids don't want to dress up and, and your kids would like to, to wear Christmas jammies, that is completely acceptable. It'll be a pretty laid back evening, uh, time for family and friends. I'll have a, a, Christmas, or a, a children's lesson that I'm super excited about. So no magic tricks this time. Sorry, guys. But uh, yeah, yeah. Wes wasn't a big fan of that one at Easter. I thought it was good, but If you shave, you shouldn't be in jammies. Oh, I got it. If you're old. Okay, that went over my head for a second. If you can shave, if you grow facial hair, you shouldn't be in jammies, right? Yeah. If you do, make sure the flap is closed in the back. Nobody wants to see that. (laughs) All right. All right. Let's get into the message today before we get in trouble. Before we get in more trouble. We'll be in Luke 2, verses 1 through 20. It's a completely appropriate section of Scripture to look at. It is the Christmas narrative. And as always, whenever you open the Bible, I know it can be an intimidating, intimidating thing, but we want to do our best not to just like whip right through it and read as fast as you can so you can check it off your list. It's really good to get in the habit of what we call meditating on Scripture. And that really just means to slow down, to grab a word or two that sticks out, to kind of turn it over in your mind, think of other similar words, and, and just really slow down and, and take your time. Try and come to a text as if you've never heard it before. And uh, allow the Holy Spirit to, to kind of let it ruminate in your soul and you might just hear from Him. And so that's what I want to do with you this morning. It's a very familiar passage, but hopefully as we work through it together, we meditate on it together, we can put a fresh take on a very familiar passage for us this morning. As many of you know, we've been in a, a Christmas Advent series. Uh, we've called it Coming Soon, where we've been going through the Advent season, uh, anticipating the coming of Christ at Christmas, in kind of the, the flow of a, of a movie script. And this morning, we come to the climax of the story, the high point of the story, where everything's been working towards. And what we're going to discover is that there is a very, very unexpected plot twist. Again, you all know what that is, but let's pretend like we've never heard this before. We'll discover together a very unexpected plot twist. So if you have your Bibles, open with me to Luke chapter 2. It'll be on the screen. As you're flipping there, I want to tell you about a man that I met once on a megabus named Turtle. man named Turtle. I grew up in Fulton County, which some of you may know. Don't hold that against me, all you Henry County folks, right? I'm Henry County now. I live in Henry County now. But for a season in between Fulton County and Henry County, I lived in Cleveland. And Cleveland is nice. I'm not sure I would say it rocks. Um, it's nice. It's a nice place to live. It's where I, I met and wooed my wife, Rachel, right? I'll tell you later what it means to woo all you guys. 
I got her. I got her. That's where I met Rach. So I lived there for a while. I worked as a junior high youth pastor. I was an intern and then a junior high youth pastor. I can't remember why. While I was there, it was probably my car. My car died. I had this old Pontiac Grand Prix that I hit a deer with. And uh, I, I replaced the bumper myself from a junkyard. And it was white. My car was gray. And so I didn't want to pay someone else to paint it. So I found like a gray primer that matte and I painted it. It kind of matched, right? <laughs> I called it the deer slayer. <laughs> the deer slayer. Right? So I think the reason that I took a Megabus is because the deer slayer was broken. It was in the shop for some reason. So I take the Megabus. I'm going from Cleveland to Toledo. And while I'm on the bus, I met, I met a man named Turtle. That was his given name. It's not his nickname. That was his name. I still have his contact in my phone. I should call it sometimes and see if Turtle's still around. <laughs> anyway, our conversation on the bus started out like, like it starts out on any trip, right? You're on a plane, you're stuck next to someone for a couple hours, so you, you strike up conversation. And so uh, you do what you do. It's like, okay, so where are you headed? What's up? What do you do for a living? And I come to find out, Turtle tells me that he's a medic for the Occupy movement. So this dates me a little bit. You remember the Occupy movement? The Occupy Wall Street movement is about 14 years ago in 2011. There's a bunch of really excited people because of corporate greed and Wall Street and all the injustices in our economy. Everybody was, we were protesting, right? Like we do, protesting. So he tells me, I said, what do you do? He said, well, I'm, I'm a medic for the Occupy movement. I was like, really? You get paid to do that? And he's like, well, no, I'm more of a volunteer. But our community, we really, we take care of one another, right? It's like, okay, that's awesome. So we got to talking a little bit more. I was like, so what exactly are you guys protesting? Like, I've seen it on the news, but I never met someone who's, like, actually there. What are you guys all on about? I don't remember precisely what he said, but it was something along the lines of, we're protesting all the injustices and the socioeconomic, all the, all the systematic, all that stuff, right? We want to see change because our system and our government is broken. There's all this injustice and inequality, and we're protesting that. So we're trying to fix this broken system in America to make life better for the average American all right, that sounds good. I can get behind that, I guess, right? Noble cause. So I said, you're trying to bring about social change, right? Yeah, that's right. So you're trying to bring about some more peace, some more financial stability, some justice to America? Yeah, that's about it. That's, that's what we're doing. I said, okay, that's noble enough. So what happens? What happens if your Occupy movement is successful? What then? Let's say you're able to reform our government. Let's say you're able to actually bring some more peace, some more uh, equality to our world, prosperity for all. What then? And he looked at me kind of confused. As if to say, well, what do you mean, what then? Like, everyone lives happily ever after, right? Like a, like a Hallmark movie. You got the protesters, they're all protesting, and they succeed in their thing, and the guy gets the girl, of course, because it's Hallmark, the guy gets the girl, right? And then everybody lives happily after, and that's what we do. I said, okay, Turtle, assuming that, that this all happens, like, let's say you achieve your goals of fixing corruption and the broken system, what then? And again, he just looked at me confused, like, what do you mean, what then? We live a happily ever after, that's what then? So I asked him another question. I said, Turtle, do you think that there is an issue of greed in the human heart? I knew what they were protesting, right? Corporate greed. Shrewd as serpents, innocent as doves. I baited him a little bit. He said, well, yeah, of course. Even the best of us fall prey to greed sometimes. I said, well, okay. 
Let's say you and your movement fix whatever is broken. What's to keep it breaking? What's to keep it from breaking again if greed still exists in all of our hearts? And he paused for a second. I kid you not, this is what he said next, verbatim. He says, man, we have a much deeper problem than a system, don't we? If only there was a way to fix our hearts. Hmm. Got him, right? (laughs) Yes, if only. If only there was a way to fix our hearts. When I tell you this story, not to make fun of Turtle, or to make him into some kind of straw man, but rather I think his desires, they express what we all long for as humans. We long to live in a land that is stable. We want there to be peace and prosperity and justice for all. We want equality and love to be the thing that reigns supreme in the land. If only there was someone who could fix our issues, right? If only there was someone who could save us. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, you may know where we as humans tend to look for this kind of salvation. And sadly, it's not first with God. It's with kings, and with political leaders instead. That's because we believe that primarily our biggest problems exist out there. Our problems are out there. If we could just have more money or better jobs, if we could have better leaders, if we could just have better laws or get a better education, well, then the world would be a better place. Peace and prosperity would flow. And so when we get to the climax of any political drama, or, or any movie for that matter, the, the, the climax usually lands on a strong leader, right? He, he rises up, and he's going to be the one that's going to bring about uh, revolution, going to bring about economic prosperity. Again, if you know the scriptures, you'll know that Israel did this. When they finally get to the promised land, to the place where God had been promising them for over 400 years, they finally get there, what do they do? Do they turn to God? No, they ask for a king. They see, see that really tall, strapping guy over there? Man, he looks like a ruler. Look, how, look at his jawline. That is sharp, right? That guy, he should be our king. Saul, we want Saul to be our king. Rather than turning to God, they ask for a king, just like all the other nations. See, church, this is what we do. This is what our hearts want. We want a handsome, tall, strapping, winsome political figure to sweep in and bring about all of the changes that we want so we can pay less taxes, we can have more money in our pocket, a better bottom line, peace and prosperity for all, right? Yes, we can. Remember that slogan? Yes, we can. Make America great again. I had to look up President Joe Biden's slogan, because it's not that great. He needs a new speechwriter, <laughs> right? Let's finish the job. It doesn't have that great of a ring to it. Uh, we can do better. We can do better on, on lots of fronts there. With all of the people that we're voting for for president, we can do better, right? But this is this, these are the kind of saviors that we look for, political saviors. And so when Luke, Luke is a masterful storyteller, He's also a doctor. He's a sharp man. When he begins the story of Christmas and the story of the one who will come to save us, he gives us two options. And one is is very different 
from what the world would crave. In Luke 2, we get a glimpse of two very different saviors. One is a worldly savior who provides what we all want through government, through power, and through might. The other is a heavenly savior who provides not necessarily what we want always, but always what we need through meekness, humility, and grace. I'll let you be the judge as we read as to which Savior you choose. So let's read it together. Luke 2, verse 1. Luke writes, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Scandalous. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there were no guest rooms available for them. And there the shepherds were living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all of the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. And when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. And so... They hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all of these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all of the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told." All right. Today, words like salvation and savior have taken on a very spiritual connotation because of Christianity and everything that we know about Jesus and the New Testament. There's nothing wrong with that. But again, it's helpful. It's helpful to try and read scripture as if we're hearing it for the very first time. It's helpful to understand what someone in the time of Jesus' birth would have thought when they, they heard these words. So we can ask the question, what would, what would a Roman or a Greek or a Jew during the time of Jesus, what would have they heard or thought when they heard a word like salvation or savior? Well, they would have thought about physical deliverance. They would have thought about a powerful leader, a political leader, delivering them from their enemies, about physical peace and prosperity. When someone spoke of a savior, they almost always referred to a political leader. And so Luke, again, being a masterful storyteller, he knows this, and he begins the story of Christmas kind of baiting us a little bit. He clues us in to a potential savior. 
In those days, he says, in what days? In the days of Caesar Augustus. And we talked about this two weeks ago, just a little bit, but I want to revisit it. Some of you weren't here, some of you were here, but you don't remember. That's okay, right? Who was Caesar Augustus? Who was this guy? This is where you may have tuned out in high school and history class, but history is actually super, super helpful for us here. Caesar Augustus was Rome's first emperor. He was a military dictator. Before Augustus, who was also called Octavian, he changed his name, we'll get to that in a second. Before Octavian rises to power, Rome is what is known as a republic, kind of similar to what we have. We have a representative democracy, a republic of sorts. So Rome had elected senators, and they had people clamoring for power and a bunch of corruption, kind of similar to what we have, right? All of that. And it got so bad at one point that all of these people, these senators were clamoring for power and doing all of the political shenanigans that, that they do. And eventually, Julius Caesar, a very powerful governor at the time, or senator, I have to go back and clarify that detail. You can correct me on that. Julius Caesar was a powerful political reader at that time. He was assassinated, right? And those of you who know the Shakespearean play, know the famous line, et tu, Brute, and you, Brutus. Brutus was a friend of Julius Caesar, and he was a part of the plot. And as he's dying, he's like, you, Brutus, you killed me too? What the heck, bro? That's what he said. And I quote, <laughs> rough crowd. He's assassinated. So they have all this unrest because of the killing of Julius Caesar, and three guys sort of rise up out of, out of this to become leaders. They consolidate power, and they, call, they, they bring something together called a triumvirate. It's very fancy, right? A guy named Octavian, Mark Antony, and Marcus Lepidus. They're military leaders, military um, generals. They say, listen, this is crazy. We're taking power. The three of us are going to be in control. You can imagine how that went. Not real well. And they couldn't get along. So eventually, out of the three, rose the one. It sounds like a movie thing, right? Like, out of the three, rose the one. A movie trailer, right? Octavian rises to power. And as he rises to power, like every good dictator does, he gives himself a new name. I want to be called Caesar Augustus. Do you know what Augustus means? It's like saying, listen, all of you peasants, you're going to call me Caesar the August, the revered the respected. He's a real humble guy. Real humble guy. Anyways, Augustus, he consolidates power. He makes Rome an empire with him as a ruling dictator. And when we hear dictator, we kind of bristle because mostly we just know evil dictators. But a dictatorship is actually not that bad of a form of government if you have a, a good and benevolent dictator. And this guy was, he was sort of a mixed bag. He actually did some really good things. Augustus was able to consolidate power, and by doing so, he could make swift changes quickly. He reformed the tax code, and he did so in such that he was able to, to raise extra funds to create public services. He created a police force and also a, a firefighting service for the public good. He also created something called the Praetorian Guard, the Praetorian Guard, and he raised Rome's standing army, which he used then to establish what historians have called the Pax Romana, or the Roman peace. During Augustus' reign, and actually 200 years after it, Rome was a very, very peaceful place. And that's because he ruled with an iron fist. Not surprisingly, 
People under his rule, they chose peace rather than the alternative. You say, what was the alternative? Death. So naturally, you you choose peace rather than death. That's what they did. And so Augustus is credited as having restored law and order, bringing about global peace on the earth. He's credited as being a God and the Savior of humanity. You say, well, how do you know that? Because we found an inscription in Turkey dated back to 9 B.C. I mentioned this two weeks ago. It's called the Preen Inscription. We didn't read it, but I want to read a section of it for you today. This is kind of like the, the pamphlets that were floating around in the time that Jesus was born, in the time of Caesar Augustus. Here's what it says. It's hard to tell whether the birthday of our most divine Caesar Augustus spells more joy or benefit, this being a date that we could probably, without fear of contradiction, equate with the beginning of all things. That's quite a statement. All the history, there is none. It's just Caesar Augustus and everything on. He restored stability when everything was collapsing and falling into disarray, and he gave a new look to the entire world that would have been happy to accept its own ruin had not the good and common fortune of all been Caesar Augustus. In her display of concern and generosity, Providence has filled Augustus with divine power for the benefit of humanity, and her beneficence has granted us and those who will come after us a Savior who has made war to cease and who shall put everything in peaceful order. Man, if only we could vote for this guy, right? The birthday of our God signaled the beginning of good news for the world because of him, Caesar Augustus. Here's what I want you to see, church. This is how the world looks for saviors. Augustus is divine. He's our guy. He's our savior. He's going to bring about prosperity and stability. He's going to fix all of our governmental systems and all of the systematic injustice. He's going to drain the swamp, right? He's going to bring peace. He's going to end, end all wars. He's going he's to establish a new world order, and it's going to be amazing for everyone. Because of Augustus, everything's going to be honky-dory. This church is the salvation the world looks for. We want liberty. We want freedom and equality and peace and justice. And we look to governments and political leaders to give it to us. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. These are the saviors we want. These are the saviors we look for. Friends, how's it working for us? Sure, there are some leaders that are better than others. We should be wise about who we think about putting into office. Absolutely. Some good is done through politics, and Christians should be involved in it to an extent. But the cycle continues. It goes a man, a movement, a monument, and it's usually a crumbling one, isn't it? The world does indeed need a savior, but humanly speaking, it has yet to be able to provide one that's been able to establish anything of truly lasting and eternal significance. So, my question that I posed to Turtle, who will save us? Who will fix our actual problem? The problem that is in here, not 
out there. Luke presents us with an alternative. Listen to what the angels say about him. Verse 10, the angels said to the shepherds, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all of the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He's the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly, a great army, a company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, in the heaven that's over all things, in the universe. Glory to this God who's over all and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Again, Turtle asked, if only there was a way for someone to fix our hearts. In that conversation, I proceeded to tell that gentleman about Jesus. That he is the true Savior of the world. That he's the Messiah. That he's the one who promises to fix what's in here. And then once we fix what's in here, we can go about fixing what's out there. You see, church, unless mankind is reconciled first to God, mankind can never be reconciled to one another. It starts first with the Lord Jesus Christ and the sin that he deals with in our hearts. The angels tell us here, we hear them praising God, that Jesus has brought peace on the earth. And this is where some, some people get a little stuck, right? It's natural. You say, hold up, Levi, you said Jesus has brought peace on the earth. That's in the past tense. I don't know about you, but I wake up every morning, I watch the news, and it doesn't look like there's a whole lot of peace on the earth. I hear that. And that's where the Bible is so very helpful. If you were to flip back a page in Luke 2 to Luke 1 and read a prophecy that Zechariah gives about who Jesus would be and what he would do, we get some clarification. You discover that the peace Christ brings to earth is a peace that is not necessarily earthly, It has to do with the restoration between us and God, between humanity and their creator. You see, friends, our true enemies are not what we see on the news. They're not immigrants. Our true enemies are not foreign powers. They're not criminals or low wages or politicians or corporate greed or the 1%. It's none of those things. Our true enemies are Satan, sin, and death. In church, Jesus has defeated those enemies and brought peace to us in regards to those things. See, this is where revolution has to begin. Again, before there can be peace between us as humans, there needs to be peace between us and God. And that happens when we put faith in Jesus and he removes the, the barrier that keeps us from relating to God, our sin. Sin is our chief problem. One commentator I read this week, he put it like this. He said, too often, Jesus is presented as the one who will rescue people from unfulfillment in their marriages, in their families or jobs, from a debilitating habit they cannot overcome on their own, or from a sense of purposelessness in life. And while relief in those areas may be a byproduct of salvation, it is not, was not, the primary intent. Mankind's true problem, of which those issues are only symptoms, is sin. 
And that is what Jesus came to deal with. To deal with our sin, to bring peace between us and God. Yes, Christ does bring salvation and peace, but the peace of Christ is not like the peace of this world that we tend to think of. He told us as much in John 14 and John 16. He tells us, he says, these things I've spoken to you that in me you might have peace. I give you peace, not as the world gives, but it's a different kind of peace. In the world you will have trouble, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. The peace of Christ is an internal peace, not an external peace. And so when we come to Christ as Savior, maybe not as the Savior we want sometimes, but when we come to Him as the Savior we actually need, when we come to Him in faith, the Apostle Paul tells us what we can expect in Romans 5.1. He says, therefore, since we've been justified, that's just as if I've never sinned. Since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that peace is an incredible thing. That peace does amazing things for us in our hearts. The Apostle Paul writes in Philippians 4, 6 and 7. He says, do not be anxious about anything. Any of y'all anxious sometimes? Sure we are. Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And what? And the peace of God which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That is the peace that Jesus brings to us at Christmas. The only question left for us then is, how do we receive this Messiah? How do we receive His peace? Simply, we follow the example set for us by the shepherds. They sought Jesus out. While others, it said, they were amazed at these things. And it says, it doesn't say they did anything. Some people did. Some people were just amazed, right? Like, wow, that's interesting. Hmm, I'll have to think more about that. Some people just wondered. They stood around in amazement. Some people were just confused. Yeah, I can't make sense of that. I'm not even going to think about it. It's too scary. I I don't even want to think about that. Other people, maybe they were just too busy. These angels come, and, and it sounds like thunder and lightning, but they're too busy about their own work. They, don't have, they just miss it completely. But not, not the shepherds. The shepherds pay attention to the proclamation, to the good news. And then they put their faith in action by seeking out the Christ, the child, to know him. Well, church, my wife will tell you I'm no angel. It's true. I'm no angel, but I stand before you today as a messenger, a messenger of God. That is what angel means, a messenger of God. I stand before you today with good news of great joy that will be for all people. 2,000 years ago, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Messiah. He is the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find hundreds and thousands of transformed human beings. Not perfect, but they're growing in grace every day. You'll find hundreds and thousands of men and women growing in grace. His believers gathering weekly in buildings and homes around the world, worshiping a baby born in a manger crucified on a cross, 
and resurrected three days later. What will you do with this good news? Nothing? Or will you follow the example of the shepherds who after hearing the gospel proclaimed went out to find everything that the Lord had told them about? And in doing so, they found a Savior not necessarily that they wanted, but they found the Savior that they needed. Will you? Will you? Let's pray.